I'm not a word game guy. I'm not a guy who likes Scrabble and Bananagrams. You know, I love Scrabble and Bananagram. Oh, yeah, I know. So does my wife, Mary. It's the one negative in our marriage. <laughs> I can't play Scrabble. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 160. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Have you ever read a book that made the world around you feel just a little bit magical? That's the experience I had with Harry's Trees by John Cohen. And if that title rings a bell, it might be because I recommended it to Carrie Sweeney in What Should I Read Next, episode 153. Today, I'm delighted to welcome author John Cohen to the show to chat about his unorthodox path to writing, the mighty bookworm women in his life, the magic of ordinary things, and what it was like to live with the school librarian as a child. Make sure to stick around till the end of today's episode to hear about an extra special episode coming your way next week. Let's get to it. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. I know that you're a big reader and a diverse reader, so I'm definitely interested in hearing about that. But I most recently read and enjoyed your newest novel, Harry's Trees, and it is a pleasure to talk to someone who clearly feel so passionately about the reading life and librarians. And I just love the worldview you built in that novel. It made me as a reader feel so at home and in good hands. Good. I would say it was inevitable that I would write something like Harry's Trees since I was born into a world of books and, and you know, my mother, the librarian, my father, the English teacher. Uh, so this book was um, not just an idea coming to me. I guess it was destiny or something. But, um, <laughs> I would say it's the ultimate gift to someone like you whose world is all about books and, to, and anyone else um, like that. So, Well, it's always a pleasure to read a book that feels like it was destined to be. At the time that I read it, I didn't realize how much of your personal background was reflected in the pages. It made sense when I found out after the fact. But would you tell me a little bit more about what's it like to grow up the child of an English teacher? And a librarian. A working mom, and you know, I come from a generation where you know my mom kind of disappeared for a couple years when I was around, I don't know, eight or nine, because she was going to library school. Um, ultimately, became the children's librarian of my elementary school. I have to say that I sort of the unusual, sort of magical, strange part was my mom, and of course my father was read to us too. But my mom was the person who sat on the edge of the bed at night and sort of read a story or told a story and so forth. Then to have her get a job at my elementary school while I was there and to walk into the library and see her surrounded by other kids and what used to be my sort of personal magical territory brought, I don't know how to sort of convey the strangeness. Like I thought, like, mom, isn't that, isn't that something we do at home? And now all these other kids, you know, it was kind of, it was strange and funny. I never thought what that might be like for you. Yeah, right. So to have my personal reader sort of uh, co-opted was was uh, a strange experience. But, you know, I, I was immersed in that world. And then meanwhile, of course, my father was an English teacher. So I grew up in a world of books. And uh, here we are. But you didn't immediately grow up and become a writer. 
<laughs> no, a long sideways journey. So <laughs> my ambition in life was not necessarily to be a writer. I, I don't know that I had much ambition. I got an English degree, you know, after high school, I went to college, got an English degree. But in the middle of, of getting this English degree, I took a year off and worked in a local hospital. I just took a year off and did something strange. So that when I graduated with my English degree, and this is the strange part, I guess, I never took a creative writing class in college. Uh, I've never taken a creative writing class. I never wrote a story in high school or college. I did keep a diary, just sort of everyday life stuff, but I never did any creative writing. So when I graduated with my English degree, I immediately went off and got a nursing degree because my father taught at Penn, and at that time, you could go to school for free if your father worked at the university. So I just sort of like, I don't know what to do with an English degree. And I immediately went off and got a nursing degree because of my experience of working in the hospital. I didn't begin to write until I was 25 years old, a registered nurse working on a cancer floor, or intensive care. And I began out of the blue, one day sat down and wrote a short story. So that's where you have this sort of weird why did I detonate with all this English teacher background and librarian background? Why did it take me so long to do the deed? I guess is a, the question you would ask. What was that first story about? Honestly, I don't really remember. But all I know is something went off in my head when I realized, oh, I can make stuff up just like everybody else who, who becomes a writer. And I began to sort of crank out short stories I sent these stories out to magazines, you know, literary magazines and the New Yorker and all that kind of stuff. Right out of the gate, even though I wasn't qualified to be published yet, experiencing what it was like to sort of have a professional relationship with like, you know, I wrote this, I'm going to put it in the mail and see if I can be a part of this. One day, a literary magazine about a year into writing these things, you know, wrote back and said, hey kind of like this story. We'd like to buy this thing for $25 and publish it in our little literary journal. I was recently pondering the notion like, why did I take so long to detonate? And why did it happen during my nursing life? When you're in a hospital, you are in about as big a human situation as it ever gets. When, a, when you as a patient enter a hospital, it's the biggest thing practically you ever do in your life. The most dramatic, the most frightening, the most... You know, if you're having a baby, the most exciting. If you're dealing with illness, the most terrifying. Well, what my job as a nurse was to enter worlds, and I'd have about five or six patients a day, new patients, and they had these incredible real-life narratives. This was big stuff. And I think I was kind of absorbing my material there so that when life connected with preparation, meaning English major, writer, family, I think that's the reason it took so long to happen. But when it did, I was ready to be a writer because I had the notion of what life tension and narrative is all about, if, if that makes any kind of sense. Drama. It does. It does. And you've said in interviews that you've realized that your muse is a nurse. I'd love to hear you unpack that. I was exposed to other people and characters and stories. It, it, it's sort of difficult to conceptualize this thing, but walking into somebody's room I was introduced to all sorts of personality types, right, in very dramatic situations and also everyday situations so that my world became larger and my ability to connect with human emotion became deeper. I guess I had to mature a long time before I was ready to put it on paper. That's why we have all these hospital and doctor TV shows. It's dramatic. 
And I think that's where I absorb the notion of drama from, life and death. (laughs) I've never written a hospital book or a nursing book, but I think somewhere always I bring the notion of walking into the room and facing drama is something that feels like a nursing moment as well as a writerly moment. So I feel the nurse speaking to me, and it's really me speaking to me, having had a lot of contact with people in heavy human situations. You do see heavy human situations in a hospital. They are inherently dramatic. Yes. And at the same time, something I like about your books is your ability to imbue not just the big dramatic moments, but everyday moments with a weight that really lets you feel the meaning of what seemingly is an ordinary conversation or an ordinary minute at the dinner table. To sort of speak to, to, to your notion there, put everything I just said about the nursing and the heaviness of life and all the rest of it, put that in one corner. We bring out another notion, and this I don't know where it came from, which is I do feel the magic of everyday life. You know, I'm not talking exactly spiritual here, but I think if you look all around you and you open your eyes and you observe acutely, the ordinary world is kind of full of incredible details that sort of glow. And some people do fantasy with that in a sort of a large Harry Potter way or a Gabriel Garcia Marquez magical realism way. I love that the ordinary is just slightly elevated and magical all the time. You know, the glow of the light, the dog looking out the window, there's something special going on. That's the magic of Harry's trees in my mind. Maybe you can put it a little bit better as as having read that thing. First, I'm going to ask you a hard question. They're all hard questions. (laughs) Would you describe what you mean by magic? I don't actually believe in magic. I don't actually believe in um, ghosts among us and all the rest of it. But what I love and what I've noticed again and again, how magic and enchantment are part of everyday existence. I think I've always loved this notion, right, that we're constantly, all of us, are imbuing the world with specialness all the time. So, you know, obviously we live in a real world. We, you know, we all have jobs. I had a nursing job. You know, we go to work. We obey traffic lights. We do all this stuff. Yet, all of us engage in magical thinking or make these magical connections or make magical leaps all day long. So it's as casual as saying like, oh, I'm going to wear my lucky tie, my lucky dress <laughs> to the meeting. Or you're walking down the street and you see, you know, you're in some city and you bump into somebody and go like, I, I-, I can't believe this. I was just thinking of you and here you are. And what are the chances of that happening? Well, that's magic, right? That's magic talk. There's no connected dots. You know, you just happen to run into somebody on the street. You know, you're at a wedding and it's a rainy day. And then just before the ceremony, the sun comes out and everybody sort of goes, the bride and groom are blessed by the sun. You see, the rainbow came out and you go like, no, the clouds kind of cleared and it got sunny. But we all know that was a magic moment. There is no magic in Harry's trees. And yet it's a book entirely imbued with magic. Yeah, there's nothing in that book that couldn't actually happen without, you know, without a wand. Exactly. More than an event in the story, it's just a tone and a perspective that you feel when you're reading it. Yes. Is that something you set out to capture from the beginning when you started writing? It is my voice. That's the only way I can describe it. I can't not do this imbued world where unlikely strangers come together and have these sort of magical, beautiful human relationships. People say like, you know, 
There's a couple times I cried with Harry's trees. Now, yes, this is a book with grief and redemption and there's sadness and so forth. But what I really like to hear and what is really special is when people say, I, I kind of cried at the end because I didn't want the book to end. I longed to be in the world of Harry's trees. It's not sadness, it's longing. You don't want this to go away. You wish the world was like this. Everybody connecting up and everybody having a solution to their problems at the end. And it's very tidy and kind of beautiful. And I like when people cry for that reason. <laughs> well, I think it's so interesting now that we're talking explicitly about nursing to notice how when people are facing something daunting in their personal lives, whether that's emotionally or physically, so often it does change your perspective. I feel like that's what we see in your work is people who undergo some significant change in their life, whether it's the loss of a spouse or a partner or a profession, something that was really important to them. And it changes the way they see the world. I feel like stepping into your book is an invitation to see the world in a new way. Yes. You know, and the idea that everybody in this book is having a vulnerable moment and they need each other without knowing why or how exactly to heal their wounds. Like Amanda, who is just, you know, the hard charging mother of the young girl Oriana in this novel, who just will not allow nonsense or fantasy of her daughter, any of that stuff. There's a way you grieve, and we're going to do this in a sort of a regular way. Well, of course, what she needs is to be opened up a little bit, but doesn't know it until she knows it. And Harry needs to live a larger life, and he gets tangled up with a little girl who needs a solution to the way she grieves. And all these people are missing one piece of the way that they can leave stuff behind, and they have to rely on somebody else's odd way of living or point of view to finish their own personal story, if any of that makes sense. It does. And there's something else I'm curious about. You mentioned that your way of writing was to see this world from this specific point of view and that your characters are a little quirky and odd. I knew that you were a screenwriter. I didn't realize until recently that you wrote works like Minority Report, which is quite different. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little about that. Uh, What do you you make of that dichotomy? Well, it is surprising. I don't know how I did it or what I was thinking, but I am not an ambitious person, and I will explain that. I am not someone who said, you know, like I was saying, in college, like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a writer, and I'm going to get published, and then I'm going to figure that out, and from there, I'm going to jump off of books, and I'm going to go to Hollywood, and I am going to get a movie made by Steven Spielberg if it kills me and I'm going to devote my life to figuring out the whole puzzle of how you move forward through a writing career and get the golden, you know, all that stuff never occurred to me. (laughs) Never. I wasn't using writer as a tool to get to screenwriting as a tool to get a movie made by Spielberg. All I've ever cared about was writing. Just being in my room by myself, making stuff up. Every once in a while, I would look up and I'd go like, oh, wait a minute, my first couple of novels got optioned by Hollywood. Huh, that's interesting. What is that all about? I really am not being coy here. I fell into it because it was it's always been about story. It happened that, that stories were being picked up by Hollywood. But I did look up at that moment um, after two novels, and I said, why are they buying my books? 
I did the, something that I've never done since and, and I'd never done before, which is I went to Borders Bookstore and I said, what is a screenplay? What is a screenplay they're talking about all the time? And I got a book out from the self-help writing section, uh, How to Make a, a Good Screenplay Great by Linda Seeger. And I taught myself how to write screenplays. And then I began to um, craft these things. I had no idea what I was doing. I began to hand these things in. I handed one in to my literary agent at the time. He says, you know, this is a screenplay. I think I'm going to give it to the people who have been sort of looking at your books. I stopped my novel writing after two novels and devoted myself to cracking the craft of screenwriting. One of these things got optioned, and then I wrote a bunch that didn't, and then a bunch more got option and there was these sort of low level things happening one of them which almost sold um, got picked up and got the attention of, of, a, of, a, of a big director who had this project that nobody could crack this story called Minority Report and there had been several attempts and it came my way because I was you know I was cheap and I was kind of writing thrillers at the time for reasons I can't explain because I don't read sci-fi to any great extent, don't know too much about it. I managed to write this screenplay and it got everybody excited, opened up all these doors and began the sort of Spielberg cruise journey and then became bigger than me and ultimately other people took over the project. I did this for about five or six years and it was fun and fine and there was money to be made. But of course, since I'm a writer... What I really was missing the whole time was writing my books. Hollywood's great for excitement and some money, but what I really wanted to do was write books. And so I've sort of journeyed away from the Hollywood experience again and back to books. And you're still in it, having at this point had an admirably long writing career. Not everyone has that kind of stamina. So what do you attribute that? To the core element, which is I can't escape this thing that I love to do, which is write stories. So I'm going to do it whether anybody's buying them, whether they're being made into movies, whether I'm writing novels. I want to make stuff up. So I'm going to write all the way to the end. And it's always been about how do I get to go up to my magic room and make something up? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, there are elements you can't control that are just pure luck, which is, of course, the Hollywood thing was luck and it provided income to support my novel life. But the other incredibly lucky thing was I was married somebody who understood the artistic ups and down and the process and was incredibly supportive and had a steady job with health benefits. Uh, my wife, even in our young and early marriage and when we didn't have much money and I began to do this writing, she never said to me, I'll give you five years, which is what happens to a lot of people. We're in a lucky situation. Writing is in my blood. I'm always going to do it. Have you always realized how you lucked out in the sympathetic partner department? 100%. It's a crucial element in this whole thing. She's an Ann Bogle-sized reader, <laughs> and she just consumes books. Somebody that I turn to every day when, you know, when I'm writing Harry's Trees, and I'll just like, we go for the walk. And at the end of writing a day, you know, I said, Mary, I, Oriana's in the treehouse, but Harry's not there yet, and it's midnight, and I don't know what, and I'll do it, and I'll keep repeating the problem over and over, and we walk the walk, and she is a great problem solver. I use all of my friends, anybody who's around me, to make my books happen. <laughs> that's, that's part of it. But a sympathetic spouse who is interested in your career and supportive and has fun with it, crucial to the whole thing. 
So you're not superstitious about talking about your works in progress then, as some people are? No, 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 no. For me, it's not disruptive to bring other people in and solve problems. It's interesting. I don't have a lot of writer friends that I solve things with. It's mostly neighbors and pals and people I bump into and my mother and anybody. (laughs) And what's good about that is often people will read a couple paragraphs or maybe a chapter and they can't put their finger on something, but something's not working. And I can see it in their face where they're pausing, hesitating, where something's soft, where something's not clear. And while they can't quite help me articulate it, they do pinpoint the area of trouble. So I'm wide open. Now, Mary's a huge reader. What about you, John? I am not a huge reader. I am a slow, (laughs) and I've always have been, I probably read 20 books a year, you know, sort of reflecting on this. I'm a writer in training all the time, and that I sort of hesitate on sentences and try to figure them out slowly. My mother, who lives next door, the children's librarian, gobbles books down. You know, I'll be sitting, and Mary will be across the way, and I can hear this sound. It's I call it the shh, shh, shh. <laughs> She's rifling through these books. My mother does the same thing. And as a writer, it's a little horrifying for me to know that I spent like a month on a page and, <laughs> and then have somebody go... Phew, and whiz through this thing. There's a Wallace Stegner quote in Crossing to Safety where he says that hard writing makes for easy reading. And yet I do think about the authors that that write books that I can finish in three hours. Like, oh, they spent years. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding? You need to spend six months reading this book. How dare you? (laughs) Um, But I actually, I sort of want to point something out, a a connection you and I sort of had, which I have read your book, your rather delightful book, you know, I'd rather be reading. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I have to tell you, it it was kind of this cool, weird, connective thing that was happening while I was reading your book. And it's simply that Harry's trees, you know, it's about Harry Crane and his journey with, you know, through grief and adventure. But really, one of the major themes, obviously, it's an ode to books and readings, right? It's an ode to libraries in particular. So it was kind of cool to see the way you and I approach the same story, which is, you know, we're we're having the same reader's journey, but you're doing it sort of from a memoir, nonfiction guide kind of way. And I'm making the same points fictionally. What I'm trying to say is Harry's Trees is sort of like the fictionalized version of your book. We're both interested in, in the magic of books and reading. And the point we're trying to make is that libraries are holy institutions and that they're magic and transform us. We approach the same creature from different sides. Is, does that make sense to you? It does. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. I mean, it's like true. I'm not making this up. It was very weird. Like, we're telling the same story here. And I'll get even more specific. You go into your childhood of your mother is the librarian interested in was pushing you in that direction. Your father towards taking you to bookstores. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. It is. And the experiencing you as a little girl with your 50 pounds of books going in and out of libraries. I mean, you're, you're essentially... Oriana, who is the little girl in my story, who craves books and sees the magic in them. But you're also now as an adult and someone who's guiding people, you're also Olive Perkins, which is the librarian and the person who's trying to save the library. You know, telling the story of your life fictionally, not that I meant to, not that I meant to impose, (laughs) but it's really quite there on the page. And it's funny to see we're working out the same problem and same interest, different approach. Did you notice that? 
It seems so obvious now that you say it, but no, I wouldn't have thought about it. What we do on this show is recommend books to readers in a way that an algorithm wouldn't necessarily guide them towards. But my theory is that when people read a book and they want to repeat the experience, they don't want to read something very similar to the same book. They want to find a book that makes them feel the same way. And in that sense, Harry's Trees and I'd Rather Be Reading have so much in common. Reading can change your life in ways that go far beyond your reading life. And I just really love the way you put that. John, here's how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Let's start with your favorites. Can you tell me about a book you love? A book I love is 100 Years of Solitude. You know, when I say books I love, it's also books that influence me since Mm -hmm. I'm a writer. 100 Years of Solitude was the first time I saw a real-world situation that was magical simultaneously. I'm not a fantasy reader. I don't really get that kind of stuff. However, when, you know, there's like a a scene in this book where, for instance, instead of saying the woman was sad because she was jilted by her lover, Marquez does something like, the woman sitting in a chair on one side of the small town. She begins to cry. The tears pool at her feet, go down her front steps, down the street, travel a mile, go up the steps of the lover's house and puddle at his feet at the dinner table. Now, I read that and went, wow, that is a great way to describe being sad because a love affair is over. It wasn't magical and it wasn't actually happening, but it opened my eyes. So that was a big one for me, 100 Years of Solitude. Another one that I love, and these tend to be, you know, classics, is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. What I liked about it was the simplicity and clarity of the writing, the humor of it, but also that Kurt Vonnegut was jumping all over the place and yet telling a real story. So he's in World War II. He's also on an extraterrestrial zoo on a planet called Tralfamador, and he's also with a a dentist in the 1960s. I love the humor and the jumping around quality of this and the plainness of the language that was incredibly evocative. And I know this is a tough one for for readers to hear, but Moby Dick ain't bad either. (laughs) It turns out that that's a funny book, dramatic book. The chapters are three and four pages long, and he covers science. He covers, you know... Uh, wailing, he co- recovers relationships, obsession, and it's exciting and strange. And, um, you know, it is not this massive, frightening thing that everybody believes it is. And also, my dad was a Melville scholar, so this was inevitable. <laughs> How old were you when you read Moby Dick for the first time? Uh, not until my 20s. Okay. So I wouldn't recommend it in high school. You know, it's something you might want to keep in the background. All three of these books that I mentioned sound like heavy hitters, but they're funny and they're strange and they're wonderful. But I also, I like uh, Wallace Berry and I like Alice Munro and I like, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, I can tell you a book that wasn't for me, which enrages my mother. Oh, oh, now we're all curious. It enrages her. I just had this conversation. I said, Mom, I'm going to go on this podcast and I'm going to say this thing that I know I shouldn't say. <laughs> Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Lewis Carroll, my mother's favorite book, 
Have you ever read Alice in Wonderland? Yes, but not until I was an adult, and it was much, much stranger than I expected. Me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> profoundly strange. Makes me to this day profoundly uncomfortable because it's such an unstable and unpredictable world. But more to the point, it's an incredibly complicated and sophisticated word game book. There's a lot of math puzzles and strange illusions. And I'm not a word game guy. I'm not a guy who likes Scrabble and Bananagrams and crossword puzzles and puns and literary sort of nonsense. And I've never been grabbed by that book. And my mother has like five editions of it. We're on opposite ends of the spectrum on that one. Um, Would you agree? You know, I love Scrabble and Bananagram. Oh, yeah, I know. So does my wife, Mary. It's the one negative in our marriage. (laughs) I can't play Scrabble. But I still, uh, okay, I will say that this fall I was in the home of a fellow writer who collects anything having to do with Lewis Carroll or Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And as far as the like work of art factor, it was amazing. The The first editions and artifacts. I mean, he had one illustrated by Dolly. It was incredible. So I thought that was amazing. Oh, that's the perfect guy. But the text, I mean, eh, no thanks. Eh, No thanks. Yeah, I'd rather read something else. (laughs) Salvador Dolly illustrating Lewis Carroll makes my point, I think. Beautiful editions, incomprehensible, Mm -hmm. but you know. (laughs) So my favorite children's book, and this again is a long ago, far away one. It's called The Cricket in Times Square. Yes. I haven't read that since fifth grade, John. Yeah, I know. Well, I have it turning my head around right here on the shelf behind me in my collection of books. That's by a guy named George Selden. It's also when I fell in love with illustrations. There's an old illustrator named Garth Williams. And by the way, it's one of the fun things that I had fun with with Harry's Trees. It's a adult book, but I've got a couple illustrations in there. I didn't know that because I read the e-galley. Wait a minute. So have you looked, have you seen a hard copy of Harry? Yeah, it's on my shelf, but okay. I haven't like flipped through and looked at every page. No, I'm going to do that as soon as we hang up. Yeah, go go to page 154. There's a major illustration in there. Okay, so you like plenty of classics, but Lewis Carroll is not for you. John, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? Uh, I want to read faster. <laughs> no, I've I've uh, I've had a very happy reading life, and I'm still discovering things, things that I would never approach. I'm actually reading David Foster Wallace, who is impenetrably complicated, and you would think, like, my God. And if you want to read two pages a, a night, that's the guy to read. Do you have something to recommend that's a little lighter and faster that I can whip through the pages like everybody else does? Well, okay, I think like everybody else does is a misnomer. Okay. And I think it's great that you give the writers their due by reading carefully. But how do you feel about talking about books that might be good not only for the reader of Harry's Trees, but hopefully for their author as well? What do you think? Okay. So I can see in your reading life that you love the Marquez. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I don't even know what direction to go in with that, except you clearly appreciate humor in the ordinary. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I love to hear what you think about the one in a million boy, because the story is completely different from yours, but these books would be friends. If books could be friends, they have so much in common thematically and plot wise. We do have a story of unlikely friendships. We have people brought together by grief. Mostly it's the tone that I think you're going to feel right at home in. Have you read the storied life of AJ Fickrey? Uh, Yes, I have. Is that one you enjoyed? Yes, I enjoyed it. It's interesting. I'm a library guy and not a bookshop guy. Uh, (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
I really liked that book. I wanted it to be a little bit bigger and follow some of the characters a little. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there were some neighbors and there was a car accident and there mm-hmm. was this and that. And I wanted it to be just a little bit wider. But I love anytime you're playing with the notion of, I forget the girl's name or the woman's name who's doing the tribute to her father with the each chapters. What, what was the name of the hero in that book? That's a great question. Because you know what I remember? I remember the way it made me feel. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, I wanted a little more, but I really liked that book. What made me think of it in the context of Harry's Trees is that it's a book that has the magic, even though there's nothing in that book that couldn't happen. It's occupying that similar space. Yes. No, I totally agree. And I've heard people link and I myself have linked because you're always supposed to like, what are the comps? <laughs> we all were doing a man called Ove and, and A.J. Fickrey mm-hmm. because Harry's Trees is a tone and voice book. Okay. What about The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafone? Have you read that? No. Oh, okay. I really like this for you, John. Definitely heard of it, though. That doesn't surprise me. This is one that you find on people's lifetime favorite books list, modern classic. And what I like about it is it's very atmospheric in a similar way to Marquez. It's built around a literary mystery. You have a book within a book. It has a really interesting setting. It's set in post-Civil War Barcelona, has a rich cast of characters. It's got a mystery, personal intrigue, lots of surprising twists and turns. Okay, I've got it down. I'll, I'll do that one. I think that could be a good one for you. And I'd like to take a stab at another memoir for you. Really? A memoir? Okay. I'm thinking about Danny Shapiro. Have you read anything by her? No. Okay. Hourglass came out most recently. Uh, The subtitle is Time, Memory, Marriage. In snippets, she's writing about how our lives can turn on a moment. And um, she talks about falling in love with her husband, a time when her child was ill, there was an accident. It's very difficult to describe what it's about in a way that sounds interesting at all. But the way she writes about ordinary events is so fascinating and engaging. And because of the way she writes about ordinary events, events. I'm really curious what you would think of her new one called Inheritance. It's a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. It doesn't come out until early 2019. Well, that's not going to do me any good. I got to wait that long. (laughs) You can look forward to it. Ah, okay. Should my precursor be Hourglass to lead up to it or start with this new one? You can start with the new one. If you're impatient, read Hourglass. Neither of these books is particularly long. I'm actually looking at this now. It says it's 272 pages, but the format is small. It goes quick. They both stand alone just fine. But I like this because she's writing about a family secret. It's probably on the jacket copy, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. She discovers a key part of her past, key part of her identity is not as she believed and is not as she was explicitly told by her parents and she discovers the secret and it throws her whole understanding of herself into confusion. But what I like about this is she is able to imbue the act of someone following her on Twitter with deep emotional significance. I got to admire that as a writer. Is it, is it creepy significance? No, no, no. It's it's like heartwarming. It's like, where's my tissue? This is so exciting. I'm just not sure what to do. I want to jump up and share. Okay, good. If an author can write about a Twitter follow in that kind of way, 
especially in 2018 when I just mostly want to like burn my computer down every time I yeah. load Twitter. It's, she's doing something special. If you can get me past something that uh, deeply doesn't move me at all and, and kind of freaks me out and make me love it, that's an interesting concept. And this is a memoir? It's a memoir. It's that large, but she didn't tap into it yet until this, this new one. Interesting. <laughs> I'm just sitting here not giving away any secrets, but it's hard, John. And she didn't give this secret away in Hourglass. I don't believe she knew it in Hourglass. Uh, okay. I've written them down. Okay, John. So out of those three picks, that was The One in a Million Boy, The Shadow of the Wind, and Inheritance. Which do you think you'll read next? I think I will, because I'm a completer, finish my, my David Foster Wallace essays. and oh, then I have nothing. Well, yeah, because he deserves it. But anyway, I'll, I will finish that. And of these three things, The Million Boys or one in a million, um, I think I will go with that one. If this is a game show, <laughs> I think that's number one. Monica Wood for 300. Yeah, exactly. Well, that sounds good to me. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thank you so much for talking books and for talking your book with me today. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I appreciate your uh, letting me meet with you today. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with John, and I'd love to hear what you think he would enjoy reading next. Leave a comment at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 160, that's 160, and that's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm sitting down with Ann Kingman, formerly of the much-beloved podcast, Books on the Nightstand, to recommend books for your loved ones this holiday season. We'll be selecting the perfect literary gifts for picky dads, faraway friends, bookworm tweens, and that one relative everyone has who only reads doorstop biographies of long-dead historical figures. It is going to be so much fun. Make sure you're subscribed to What Should I Read Next so you don't miss next week's episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen. We'll see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next? If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend this season. Thanks to the people who make the show happen, What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.